Genesis chapter 2. And beginning in verse 7. And ladies and gentlemen, this is the word of God. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris which flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to the beast, every beast of the field, But for Adam there was not a founder helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And when they heard the sound of the Lord God, walking in the garden in the cool of the day. 
and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all above all beasts of the field. And on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for its revelation. Write its truth on our hearts. And in this be glorified, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What's wrong with the world today? Early in the 1900s, the turn of the 20th century, the Times newspaper of London posed that question to several prominent authors. The question once again, what's wrong with the world today? G.K. Chesterton responded with a one-sentence essay. Dear Sir, I am. Yours, G.K. Chesterton. That's clearly a witty reply, and more importantly, it's a biblical one. Dr. Al Mohler once wrote this, Most Americans believe that their major problem is something that has happened to them, and that their solution is to be found within. In other words, they believe they have an alien problem that is to be resolved with an inner solution. What the Gospel says, however, is that we have an inner problem that demands an alien solution, a righteousness that is not of our own. End of quote. That's very helpful. It's very clarifying. The world says the problem's outside you. The solution is inside you. How many times we hear that? That's the dominant thought in our culture. The Gospel says the problem is inside you. The solution is outside you. The world says the problem's outside, it's your environment, it's the influences of evil around you. You're actually good in and of yourselves, and given the right environment, you will show forth your goodness that's inherent within. The world says the problem's not you, it's your environment. Now, there's no doubt that environment shapes us. Sin is all around us. It's pervasive. But the environment is not our ultimate problem. The teaching of the Bible is this. Someone can be raised in a perfect environment and the problem will still manifest itself. Our problem is us. Each of us can identify our problem with one glance in the mirror every morning. How do we come to be in this bleak condition? Well, we don't have to guess. Genesis 2 and Genesis 3 tells us what happened. It's tragic. Genesis 3, I think, is the most tragic 
of chapters in our Bibles. And what we're reading of here in broad terms is what is called the covenant of works. We started on that last week. Covenant of works is also called the covenant of creation. Let me lay some groundwork by saying this. Covenant is the structure in which God forms relationship with man. The theological term for this, I'm sure you've heard of it. If you were here last week, you did. The covenant theology books that you can find are really the revelation of Scripture. Covenant theology is actually the right way to understand our Bibles, and that's because God is a God of covenants. Genesis 1 and 2 reveal much to us. There's natural creation, and we have the need and obligation of obeying God perfectly simply because God is our creator. He made us, and he's actually sustaining us. God gave man dominion. He told man and woman to fill the earth and subdue it. And that is a must. That's not an option. But Genesis 2 goes further and describes this special relationship that God had with Adam and then Eve. And that's above and beyond the natural allegiance that Adam would have to God as creator. And what we saw last time, without taking too much time to go back into all that we discovered, the word covenant is not used here, but all the ingredients of covenant are in view. A covenant is a commitment with divine sanctions. God promised reward for obedience and sanctions, severe sanctions, for disobedience. There's blessing for obedience. I believe that Adam would have had access to the tree of life had he obeyed, but there was a curse for disobedience. God stipulates the conditions in which Adam must operate. There's law here, but what turns law into covenant is this sanctioned commitment between two parties. And that's what we see here. There are threats, sanctions, which formalize that covenantal commitment. It stresses the necessity of obedience and the price of not being faithful. It's all here in Genesis chapter 2. Disobey Adam and you will die. As we saw last time, Eden was something of a garden temple, a mountain temple. And Adam was that temple priest, the temple prophet, and the temple king. Look with me in Genesis 15, excuse me, chapter 2 and verse 15. <clears throat> the Bible says here, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Those Hebrew words, work and keep, that we find in the ESV are the exact same words we find in Numbers 3, which are then translated as minister and God, but they're a, they are the same Hebrew words. And in Numbers 3, they describe the priestly functions of the Levites in guarding the tabernacle. The priests were to work in and guard the tabernacle so that it remained holy and were instructed, Numbers 3 verse 10, hear this, we saw this last time, if any outsider comes near, he shall be put to death. So Adam was given the task of being a priest operating in that guarded garden sanctuary. Moving on to verse 16, Adam is a prophet. Guarding God's sanctuary involved the task of making sure God's commands were obeyed 
in the sanctuary temple life. What was a general command now becomes very specific in verses 16 and 17 of Genesis 2. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So Adam was given instruction. He was to guard the purity of the temple and it would be measured, his level of obedience, by what he did with God's commands. God had spoken personally to Adam and what he said enhanced the priestly role he already had with this now prophetic dimension. God had spoken to him and he was now responsible to speak that forth whenever the thought regarding God and his word was challenged. Whenever words were challenged, the words of God. Jeff Wisner writes this, Prophets are required not simply to receive the pure word of God, but also to relay it in its purity and to rebuke all those who oppose it. He must fulfill his duties according to the prophetic word and see that no threat to God's word goes unconfronted. So, Already we see the task in view. Adam had heard from God. He knew what God had said. God was not fuzzy. God was very, very clear. And Adam was now responsible for challenging anything that would challenge that word. And what happened? Well, Genesis 3, we've read it. The serpent deceived Eve by means of a conversation. And Adam, rather than being the prophetic figure he should have been in the garden, remained silent. He was there with her and failed in the task completely. He should have said, God indeed has said, and this is what he said. God was very clear. And we shouldn't be talking to strange snakes in a garden anyway. Centuries on, the last Adam responded to Satan's temptations with, It is written, it is written. It, was, it is written, quoting the book of Deuteronomy. Adam was not only a priest, not only a prophet, but verses 18 and 19 describe his kingly role. After called to be a priest and prophet, now Adam was given sovereign kingly authority over all creation. That's made clear in the fact that he was now to name all the animals, everything under his dominion. Look at verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I'll make a helper. I'll make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. God gave him that task. God didn't say, I think it should be called this. He said, I'm going to bring all of the animals to you and I'm going to listen to what you say because you have authority over the animals. That's seen by his naming of them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. To name a thing is recognition of authority over the thing. When you have a dog, it's not the dog who says, I'd like to be called Shep. You say, you will be called Shep or something else because you have authority in verse 18, God gives man, Adam, a helper for this task of ruling. So already we're seeing things. Hopefully the lights are coming on already. Adam is a priest, he's a prophet, he's a king in a temple sanctuary. 
And if Adam is king, Eve is queen. Under the headship of Adam, this woman would help him fulfill that task of multiplying and fill the earth with sons and daughters and subdue it, take authority over everything in the environment. Samuel Renahan writes this, Adam, as priest, prophet, and king of Eden, was to begin his universal dominion in a specific realm under a specific law of obedience. Adam must guard the divine sanctuary by upholding the word of God and to test his obedient protection of the garden. He was prohibited from eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, what Adam would do, what Adam did in the garden would have cosmic consequences. We saw this last time, the concept of federal headship, rather than all of us in Arizona marching or driving or flying or going by train to Washington, D.C. and casting a vote, we have someone who represents us, so they do what we would do. That's not always the case, but that is at least the concept. They go in our place and we have the house of representatives. In the same way, Adam was the representative of the human race in the garden, and what he did counted not merely for Adam, but for everyone who would come after him. The book of Romans chapter 5 makes it clear. And 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let me read verse 12 of Romans 5. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. You might say, well, I wasn't there in the garden. I didn't sin. You sinned in Adam. The sin of Adam was imputed to you. You may say, I don't like that. Well, the reverse side of it is this. The last Adam, what he did counts for all those who trust in him, and what he did is counted to you, and that you stand before God on the basis of of another, your representative, your federal head, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. What Adam would do in the garden would have cosmic consequences, not only for man, but for all creation. All creation is groaning, waiting to get out from under the curse that Adam brought on the human race. Just as what happened in Washington, D.C. affects all of us in the United States, so what Adam did in the garden affects us all. We all sinned in Adam. His sin was imputed to us, Romans 5.18. Therefore, as one trespass, that's Adam's, led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness, which is the life of Jesus, leads to justification and life for all men. For us, by the one man's disobedience, that's Adam's, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Paul confirms this in 1 Corinthians 15, For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, all those who belong to him. John Gerstner, who was the mentor for R.C. Sproul, once wrote this, when man first sinned, he died, Genesis 2.17. Now man is spiritually dead, not well, not sick, not even terminally ill, but dead in trespasses and sins. He quotes Ephesians 2.1. 
His depravity pertaining to all aspects of his personality is total. This is not to be confused with utter depravity, for there is room for deprovement. We could be worse than we are. Consequently, this slave of sin, John 8, 34, exploits every opportunity to sin in every area of his being, in, th- in thought, word, and deed, by commission and omission. Commission, the things we do. Omission, the things we fail to do, but should do. And even his good works are bad. Genesis 6, 5. All the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. And total depravity is our original contribution. We're the dirty soil in which God plants his flower and from our filth produces a thing of divine beauty. Roger Nicole comments on this. Evil's at the heart, the very heart and root of man. It is at the very foundation at the deepest level of human life. This evil is pervasive in that it spreads to all aspects of the life of man. It darkens his mind, corrupts his feelings, warps his will, moves his affections in wrong directions, blinds his conscience, burdens his subconscious, and afflicts his body. There is hardly any way in which man is called to, upon to express himself in which in some way the damaging character of evil does not manifest itself. Evil is like a root cancer that extends in all directions within the organism to cause its dastardly effects. He calls it radical and pervasive depravity. This is not to say man is as evil as he could possibly be. We think of Adolf Hitler and we think, well, he could have even been worse than he was. He could have killed his mother and he didn't. He could have been worse and we can be worse. And man is capable of what we call civic good. On a human level, a man can help elderly people cross roads. He can build hospitals. But he can never do anything for the glory of God alone until God changes his heart. He can do good on a horizontal level, but he cannot do good towards God. Only God can define what good is. And there are none that do good. No, not one. That's what our Bible says. Romans 3, quoting the Old Testament. So, take a breath. In the middle of all this mess, God intervenes by means of a promise. Go to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Here's what we call the proto-euangelion. You can impress your friends and really annoy your enemies if you can say that. Proto-euangelion, the proto, the first type. If you have a car, oftentimes before it's rolled out, Uh, By the factory, they have a prototype. It means the first of a kind. And this is the first of the kind of the good news of the gospel. The first mention of good news in the book of Genesis. Genesis 3, 15. The first mention of the gospel. Evangelion is the word for gospel. We have our English word evangel. And we have evangelicals. These are supposedly those who believe the good news. And this is very interesting to me, hopefully it is to you, because Genesis 3.15 is good news, and yet it's a curse on the serpent. In the middle of the curse on the serpent is amazing good news. The curse on the serpent becomes good news for us. 
God's curse on the serpent represents the promise of salvation for Adam and Eve and their descendants. We're about to read it, but let me say this. There's no kingdom without a king. Even the word kingdom are two words sandwiched together, king and domain. So a kingdom is the domain of a king. Across the sea there is the United Kingdom and it describes the area uh, where King Charles reigns. He reigns in his kingdom. And there are boundaries, there are fixed boundaries that can say this is his kingdom and this isn't. France isn't a part of it. Canada, well, let's talk about that. Uh, yeah, Australia, let's talk about that. But India, they've, not, they've got their independence and America's got their independence and it would have been under the kingdom, but it's, the, the, the kingdom changes as far as the United Kingdom goes. But God's kingdom is forever and ever and ever and extends way beyond planet earth to everything in the universe. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the Bible says. So that's the rule of God's kingdom. And Satan has a kingdom. Do you know a kingdom is only as good as a king? If you're in a kingdom and you've got a bad king, do you know what you've got? You've got a bad kingdom. People in North Korea don't have someone with the title of king, but they have someone who reigns. And many people are just trying to get out with their lives because they have a bad king. All they can hope for is that another king will rise after the death of the bad king and he'll be a good king. Jesus comes into Israel and his words are about the kingdom. Repent for the kingdom, the domain of the king is at hand. Repent because the king's here. I'm here. The kingdom's at hand. It's touchable. It's reachable. It's right here in the midst of you. Satan has a kingdom. Jesus said in Luke 11, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? Satan sought to set up his kingdom in the temple garden. And as goes the king, so goes the kingdom. And Adam, the king in the garden, failed. He failed as a prophet, he failed as a priest, and he failed as a king. Man was now in a helpless condition, and God gives a promise of deliverance in verse 15. Look at verse 15. I, God speaking, will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman. I'll put hostility between you. And between your offspring, your seed, and her offspring, her seed, he, that's the one who's coming, the seed of the woman, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Man was now in a desperate and helpless condition, and God said to Satan, there's one coming who will crush your head. Now the curses will drop, they will come, verse 16 onwards. For man. But before that, God promised that he would act on their behalf. Look at verse 15 again. I will put enmity between you and the woman. Now think about this, and the light's are going to start to go on for you, I pray. Think about this. There's no hostility now between the serpent and Adam and Eve. But God says, I'm going to put enmity between the two of you. 
And that, ladies and gentlemen, is amazing because it speaks of regeneration. I'm going to intervene and by making you serpent and Eve her seed at enmity with each other, I'm going to change hearts so that that which you're now rejoicing in, this alliance with man, will be disrupted in a people. Because I'm going to put enmity. By putting enmity between the woman and her seed and the serpent, it speaks of regeneration. God will take out the heart of stone that will only heed Satan's voice. And put in a heart that now beats to obey Christ. And that's in fact how Ephesians 2 verse 1 onwards should be read. You he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit of disobedience. That's what we were subject to. But God... So, now aligned with Satan, God promises, that's not the end of the story. I'm going to put enmity between the serpent's seed and the seed of the woman. Do you know I expect to see Adam and Eve in heaven? You ever want to have a word with Adam? Well, he's a forgiven sinner. Why? I believe Adam and Eve believe the promise. How do we get into the kingdom? Believe God. Isn't it more complicated than that? No. That's the story of the gospel. And when the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 4 says, this is not anything new, exhibit A is Abraham. Quoting Genesis 15 verse 6, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Do you know, I believe Adam and Eve believed God and it was counted to them for righteousness. And I pray you have believed God. And it's been counted to you as righteousness. You've got more of the picture. You know about the coming of Christ. You know the gospel. But the gospel was first declared in Genesis 3.15 and they believed it. How do we know any of this? Well, at this point, Adam and Eve were childless. They had no children. But God had promised seed. Look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. You read that and you read on, but grasp the concept here. Adam named his wife Eve, which means mother of all living. And he did so before they had any children. Doesn't that sound like Abraham? Father of many nations. He was calling himself that, changed his name from Abraham. God changed it from Abraham to Abraham rather than exalted father, now father of many nations, and he still had no children. But he believed the promise. So it was not because they had children, but because God had said so that Adam called his wife Eve. He believed God, we're going to have kids even though we're fallen, even though we've blown it. We're going to have kids. We're going to have children. Eve, I'm calling you the mother of all living. They'd never seen a child born. They didn't know what it looked like. They'd never seen a YouTube video. 
They didn't know, but they believed God. And Eve submitted to that new name given her by the husband. Adam and Eve believed God. And what happened? God clothed their nakedness through the sacrifice of another in their place. Are the lights coming on? <laughs> Look at verse 21. After verse 20 comes verse 21. I knew you were going to learn something in church, right? After verse 20 comes verse 21. Here we go. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Don't read through that and not grasp what's taking place. Garments of skins is a reference to the fact that an animal had died in their place. Instead of Adam and Eve dying on the spot, an animal died on the spot in their place. Now, we're not told what kind of animal it was. We're just told garments of skins. Could it have been an, a, a lamb? It could have been, but we're not told. But certainly it's a prophetic portrait of what would come. But certainly this is what we do know. Adam and Eve were covered. They were redeemed by blood. That's what's in view. Are the lights coming on? Well, let's go further. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to tell you something wonderful today. Something at which we should stand in awe. You may never have heard of it, but we're going to go there. Something called the triple cure. Christ, get this, as prophet, priest, and king. See, in the Old Testament, under the Levitical, the Levitical system, a man could be a prophet, he could be a priest, or he could be a king, but it was impossible to be all three. Yet, Scripture attributes all of these three offices to Christ. He's the ultimate. He's the ultimate prophet. He's the ultimate priest. He's the ultimate king. Once you say that, you say, oh yes. As priest, he represents us fully to the Father and brings the supreme atoning sacrifice of himself that placates the Father's holy and just wrath against us for our sins. As the conquering reigning king, he's forever worthy of our worship and adoration. He is king of kings, lord of lords. In Matthew chapter 11, he says, Take my yoke upon you. That's the language of a king. And learn of me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. There's kingly language throughout the Gospels. He's our priest. He's our king. He's our prophet. He speaks the word of God, and everything he says is accurate and comes to pass. He's a true prophet. He's more than a prophet, but he is a prophet. There's a Latin theological term, and I know you want to know it. It's munus triplex. It just means the triple cure. The triple cure. As far as we can tell, it was Eusebius in his ecclesiastical history who first described the concept of the three offices of Christ. He said that Jesus is the only high priest of all and the only king of every creature and the Father's only supreme prophet of prophets. Yet, as was with most things, it was John Calvin who made the concept widely known in his institutes. He writes this, 
Therefore, in order that faith may find a firm basis for salvation in Christ and thus rest in him, this principle must be laid down. The office enjoyed upon Christ by the Father consists of three parts, for he was given to be prophet, priest, and king. This concept was taken up by other reformers, including Herman Bavinck. Here's a quote. Christ, both as the Son and the image of God for himself, and also as our mediator and Savior, had to bear all three offices. He had to be a prophet to know and disclose the truth of God. A priest to devote himself to God and in our place to offer himself up to God. A king to govern and protect us according to God's will, to teach, to reconcile, to lead, to instruct, to inquire, and to apply salvation, wisdom, righteousness, and redemption, truth, love, and power. All three are essential to the completeness of our salvation. In Christ, God to humanity relationship, he is a prophet. In his humanity to God relation, he's a priest. So, God to man, he's a prophet. Man to God, he's a priest. And in his headship over humanity, all humanity, he is a king. He goes on. Scripture, consistently and simultaneously attributing all three offices to him, describes him as our chief prophet, our only high priest, and our eternal king. Though a king, he rules not by the sword, but by his word and spirit. He's a prophet. But his word is power and really happens. He's a priest but lives by dying, conquers by suffering, and is all-powerful by his love. He is always all these things in conjunction, never the one without the other, mighty in speech and action as a king and full of grace and truth in his royal rule. I love this. Once we see it, we can't unsee it. It's so exciting to me. The Westminster Shorter Catechism locks onto this. In modern English, we read these questions. Question 23. How is Christ our Redeemer? As our Redeemer, Christ is a prophet, priest, and king in both his humiliation and his exaltation. Question 24. How is Christ a prophet? As a prophet, Christ reveals the will of God to us for our salvation by his word and spirit. Question 25, how is Christ a priest? As a priest, Christ offered himself up once as a sacrifice for us to satisfy divine justice and to reconcile us to God, and he continually intercedes for us. Question 26, how is Christ a king? As a king, Christ brings us under his power, rules, and defends us, and restrains and conquers all his and all our enemies. Christ. He did what Adam failed to do. Do you see it? He's fulfilling righteousness for us. God acted on our behalf. Adam should have been our representative priest, prophet, and king, and he failed. But God sent the last Adam, who was prophet, priest, and king, succeeded, not merely for himself. I'd like you to turn to Isaiah chapter 59 for a moment. Isaiah 59, look with me in verse 14. Justice is turned back 
And righteousness stands far away, for truth has stumbled in the public squares, and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord, Yahweh, saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man. Stop, stop, stop. Pause, pause, pause. There was no one who was righteous. There was no one who had obeyed God fully. There was no one, none. There was no one. There was no man. And wondered that there was no one to intercede. There was no one who could represent God as God and man as man. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. God did not say, I'm going to do the best with what we've got to work with. There was nothing he could work with. And so God by himself did it all. His own arm brought him salvation. Not relying on human flesh. Not relying on anything of man. God became a man and wrought salvation for us. He did it all. And as we continue reading, his own arm brought him salvation. His righteousness upheld him. Doesn't this remind you of Ephesians 6? He put, he put, not man did, not the prophet Ezekiel did, not Isaiah here. No, God, he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. That's where Paul gets the language from in Ephesians 6. Remember, it's the armor of who? God. And God put the armor on and fought for us. And we're called upon to put on the armor of God. It's not our armor, it's His. And so when you put on righteousness, it's not righteousness that you find from some tree in the Garden of Eden. It's the righteousness of Christ. The helmet of salvation is Christ. Christ is my righteousness. That's my boast. That's putting on the helmet. Christ is truth. Christ is the gospel. Look at Ephesians 6 and it's Christ, Christ, Christ. His arm works salvation. He put on breastplate, the breastplate of righteousness, a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. God says, I'm going to get the job done. When God is zealous for something, it's going to happen. Let me quote Isaiah 63, 5. I looked, but there was no one to help. Do you realize that salvation is God's act from start to finish? I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the doctrine of salvation by Christ alone. Solus Christus is there in the Old Testament. Let me remind you, the first Adam was in a paradise environment with his bride at his side, with an abundance of provision all around him. The last Adam was in a desert alone, hungry after 40 days without food, tempted by food, make these stones into bread. Just like the first Adam was tempted by food, so the last Adam was tempted by food. And acting as our prophet, priest and king, he directed the attack on God's word to the scripture and said, it is written, it is written, it is written. He undid what Adam did. He succeeded where Adam fell. And what God has done for us in Christ is far more powerful, hear this, than what Satan did in Adam. 
Adam was in an innocent state, yet was able to sin. We know that because he did sin. But in the new creation, do you know in heaven, you'll not have a sin nature and you'll be incapable of sin. There, (laughs) Christ would have done much more than put man back into the garden state condition. That's what he's already done. Your salvation in Christ is not flimsy. It's a great salvation. It's amazing salvation. That's why it's amazing grace. Someone should write a hymn about that. Christ has not merely restored us to Eden where our standing before him could be hijacked or lost. No, you've been saved forever. Saved from sin to one day sin no more. What, what, how, how do we apply this kind of a message? All you're doing is talking about Christ and what he did. Yep, all I'm doing is not do this, do this, but recognize what's been done. Christianity is not a religion of do, do, do. It's a relationship built on done, done, done. He did it all. It is finished. He did it. He achieved it. And we stand in him. There are things for us to do, but only as we recognize what has already been done. We don't do things to try and get God to do things. He's done things already and has given us a perfect, flawless salvation. And that's the place from which we start to work. Work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Christ restored us not merely to an Eden where our standing can be hijacked or lost, But we're to recognize man now outside of Christ in his lost condition. And we call to all that are sons and daughters of Adam to come to the last Adam, the Lord Jesus. We need to recognize man's lost condition. We died in him, Adam. And recognize this, God's standards of justice have never been compromised. God doesn't say at any moment, I'm going to wink at sin. Boys will be boys. Girls will be girls. No. Jesus said, you must be perfect even as your heavenly Father is... Finish it for me. Perfect. Most of the people you and I will ever meet think they're good. Most. Most will say, well, compared to this guy, I think I've got a good chance of, of heaven. I've done a lot of good. God's assessment is you've not done one thing that is good according to my assessment. There are none who do good. No, not one. Well, that's pretty bleak. Well, that's the bad news. We stand before a holy God. And it's not just our sins that are an issue, but our very good works that we think are good. Isaiah 64, 6 says this, All our righteousness is as filthy rags. You see, the religious mind could understand it if it said, all our good, all our bad works are filthy before God. Oh yeah, I I admit that. But I've got some good stuff too, God. I've got some good stuff. Come on, you see what I did, right? I did some good stuff. God says, all our righteousness is as filthy rags. Because everything should be done 100% for the glory of God alone. For his name, for his pleasure. All our righteousness. The religious mind would accept it if it said all of our 
bad works are filthy, but our good works are filthy because none of them rises to the level of God's definition of good and only what is good can be rewarded. So we have committed sin and we've never committed any righteousness. On the cross, Jesus had never committed any sin. All he had done was righteousness. And on the cross, he absorbed the wrath of God due to our unrighteousness. If the lights are coming on for you, I thrill at that. Brown and Keel write this, the covenant of works, what God required of Adam, reveals that heaven must be earned. God's justice means he cannot merely give away eternal life. Life must be earned by perfect righteousness according to the law. They go on, Christ comes as the last Adam, as our representative. Where Adam failed to earn life for his descendants, Christ succeeds by fulfilling all righteousness and so meriting heaven for himself and his people. Heaven must be earned, hear this, heaven must be earned before it can be given as a gift. Christ earned heaven and then gives it to us as a free gift through faith. Christ earned heaven by his works. Here now, Hebrews 2, verse 10. Let me just simply quote it. Jesus brings with him many sons to glory. Do you see that was the task of Adam? To make many sons and make them glorious image bearers of the Most High God. Adam failed. All he brought was damnation to everyone who followed. But those who are in Christ can say, he's bringing me and all the sons to glory. He brings many sons to glory. That was Adam's task and he failed in it. Fill the earth with obedient sons who bring God much glory. But the last Adam succeeded where Adam failed. Are you counted among the many sons? My friend Greg Francis once said this, God demands 100% perfect obedience to his law. If you can't do that, you'd better find someone who can do it for you. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the gospel. He came, he lived, he died. He lived a flawless life. The second person of the Trinity became a man, born of a virgin, living that flawless, perfect life, then going to the cross, and in obedience to his Father, absorbed the anger of God that was due to us so that the good due to Jesus might be made available to us. What Christ gained by conquest at the cost of his life is made available free to us. Now we can quote Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not at your own doing, this is the gift of God, not a result of works, lest anyone should boast. That's right. None of our works, all his. In the end, we're saved by works, none of them ours. It's all him. We boast in his work, his life for us, his death for us, his flawless life, his atoning death, his resurrection from the dead. I want to finish today by going to Isaiah 53. 
and barely making a comment on it, just simply reading it. Isaiah 53, written around 700 years before the time of Christ. You'd think it was the New Testament, but it's certainly the Old. Who has believed what he's heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Remember, the arm of the Lord is the strength of God. My own arm brought salvation. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Question. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Where was he despised and rejected most? On the way to and at the cross. What a wonderful word it follows. Verse 4, surely. Child of God, hear this. Surely. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. We, we thought God was smiting him for his sins. No, 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 no. It was not for his, it was for us. Read verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He had no sin. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement, the punishment that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep. What have we done? We've gone astray. All of us. We have turned everyone to our own way. We've done our own thing. We've all sung the song, I did it my way. And the Lord has laid on him. That's imputation, folks. The iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. He didn't protest. He didn't say, I'm innocent. Stop this. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. As for his generation, who considered, this is a question, that he was cut off out of the land of the living, he's going to die. Stricken, for what? For the transgression of my people, God's people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. Again, second evidence of his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, his seed. Lights come on. Genesis chapter 3. His seed. He shall prolong his days. What does that mean? He's going to rise again from the dead. He's dead, but he's going to prolong his days. He's going to live again. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his, in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, for he shall bear their iniquities. Whose iniquities does he bear? Those he makes righteous. Who are they? My people, of verse 8. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Look away 
the problem is not without, it's within. And the solution is not within, it's without. It's seen in the person and the work of Jesus Christ who bore our sins in his body on the cross. Come to him, repent of sin, trust in the finished work of Christ, the one who was the true prophet, the true priest, the true king. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the revelation of your word. We are so thankful. In Adam all die. In Christ all are made alive. May we come to him and trust in him and recognize the full blazing glory of the gospel. He fulfilled the covenant of works for us. And by his work, by his achievement, grace is extended to us so that we're saved not by our works, but by his. By grace are you saved through faith. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.